0: What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name, of course, is Patrick Sheehan, joined by a trusty co-host, the biggest Charlie XCX fan <laughs> I personally know, Dave Marniswager. Dave, how's it going, man?
1: Charlie, baby. It's always Charlie time. Very exciting.
0: <laughs> but uh,
1: yeah, good to be back. Dine in Valhalla soon. The Northmen, gloriously released this past weekend as well.
0: What does Dead Men Never Die? Uh, we're going to be talking about the Northman, Charlie XCX, uh, Push a T album, lots of TV, another movie. So hit that subscribe if you're listening or watching on YouTube.com slash Nostalgia Pod. Also go to Spotify and give us five stars there because it, it helps, you know, and you want to support us. I know you do. Dave, we're going to start, though. I'm going to pass you the rock because last Wednesday... You were texting me. You were watching those Charlie ticket prices and you're debating do I want to go? Do I want to make this happen? And ultimately, you pulled the trigger. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Went to the crash tour stop in Boston, Charlie XCX ongoing tour last week. There's a tour that I had kind of resigned myself to perhaps not going because I had waited in the Ticketmaster line back when this all went on sale and got just screwed. By a lag and server crashing, and got screwed out of Charlie XCX tickets, which is, you know, you you wouldn't ascribe that level of demand to Charlie the way you expose to like other pop stars on national tours. Not not what I expected to have her buying her tickets be a huge challenge, but she does is selling out this this entire tour, so I guess it's not uh, completely unexpected. But I think that's also the perks of living really close to a venue where you can really play that secondary market to the last minute and wait for price drops. So even though I spent, you know, two and a half times as much as I would have, if I actually had bought them from Ticketmaster, I nonetheless still got to go. And it was really cool to be in like a sold out show and see Charlie for the first time uh, in a small venue, like house of blues, Boston thousand person venue. So it's really close, really small. And even though she, you know, she doesn't have a number one album in the U S she has one top 10 album here. She has, like, doesn't have platinum song. You know, she's not, she's not like a a super a-lister as a, as a performer, obviously her songwriting gets there, but for songwriting for other people, even though she's not like at that status, she still has this rabid fan base and it was really cool to be in that room with that energy and just to see that, you know, or even if, you aren't the top of the a-list you can still be incredibly successful and i think that was that was what immediately struck me about just being in that room and being around all these people that knew the words to all of the songs off crash an album that had only come out a few weeks ago and it was a great time uh, i think the uh the set design even for a small venue pretty cool it was like this like, staircase with like this ramp in there and charlie I think brought what we had kind of been seeing from everything that was rolled out with the crash album and the music videos, namely that she's doing choreography and dancing full time in her performance for the first time with this tour and with, you know, the videos for this album. And that, that stuff definitely changed, but she had two backup background dancers with her and she was doing all this varied choreography for like almost all of the song, honestly. And, that's definitely a change. And I think if there's one criticism I would have is that there are times when she kind of has to rely on the uh, backing track a bit when it's like the intense choreography, which is not uncommon for a lot of vocalists that are doing like hardcore dancing and performance. And I'm sure it's something that will continue to improve as she does more of this performance with choreography moving forward. Obviously it is new for her, but yeah, I was just, I just had a really good time because she, just has a lot of great songs and again the, everyone in the room really dug all those songs and she even i think livened up songs that aren't nearly as energetic in their studio form uh, song like party for you off how i'm feeling now which, you know auto tuny song that was like really fun live and even uh new shapes off crash the one with christine the queens and Carolyn bolachek like i don't even like love that song that much but like that, that song rocked when she performed it and kind of changed my opinion on the song a little bit. It's always really cool to kind of have that experience when the live performance brings something different or slightly new uh, to music you already know. And uh,
0: yep. yeah, I always really appreciate when those live versions hit different, you know, it just adds something.
1: Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's no secret that like Charlie XX's fan base. The angel is like, It's very LGBT friendly. And that was on full display at her show. It was really cool to be in that room and just see tons of happy people, happy being who they are. And Charlie, of course, plays into that uh, full blast. She's, you know, selling like douches at the merch table, for example. But even like when she's about to perform one of her biggest hits, Boys, she dedicates it to all the gay boys, quote unquote, to to use her exact phrasing. Um, That was fun too. But uh yeah, I it, I was kinda surprised actually. Her her closing track, her last track after coming out for the uh what do you call it, the uh, the encore was Good Ones, actually. You know, lead single off Crash. I wouldn't pick that as her biggest or most popular song, but that was actually what she closed with. And right before that she did unlock it off Pop Two, which is probably the true the true closer. Um but I think like starting off the Encore, she comes back out and does vroom vroom, of course, her viral hit that really kind of propelled the critical reevaluation of her career back when that came out. Coming out to Vroom Vroom and performing that and not actually dancing for that, and just kind of like rapping that song as it goes. And again, seeing everyone super hyped for a weird ass hyper pop song like Vroom Vroom. Just just a cool experience. So yeah, definitely happy I was able to swing uh swing the those tickets and go because uh, They're clearly in, in hot demand, but also it's a small venue show. You got to take advantage of those kind of opportunities when they present themselves.
0: Yeah. You know, I was wondering, cause you met, uh, you mentioned that she, uh, she played party for you. How many songs from how I'm feeling now did she play? Cause that, that was a pandemic album that she obviously didn't get to tour her for.
1: Yeah. And other than party for you, I, there's, there, there, there weren't there weren't too many too many others none that I can remember my favorite song off that album uh, I finally understand she did not play um so yeah I think for the most part she kind of jumped around but didn't really hit that album too much which I guess kind of makes sense because a lot of that does kind of clash with what's going on with yeah. crash um also she didn't play her icona pop feature big hit uh I don't care I love it I love it which is a song she's actually kind of uh, disowned. Honestly, doesn't really jive with the lyrics, so she did not play that one. But I think, nevertheless, there's still a lot of like you know bangers. 1999 huge hit. Used to know me off the new new record. Huge hit. Unlock it. I uh, was probably the biggest hit I would say overall. But uh, yeah, it was a blast. Seeing Dua just a few weeks back, and
0: then seeing Charlie, mm-hmm. I, I think different in terms of type of music, but similar in terms of like production choreography i mean obviously duo's got a much bigger budget mm, <laughs> for yeah. her choreography how would you compare the two shows
1: right so i think the the duo concert was such a long time coming with all the pandemic delays that when i when you see the future nostalgia tour it's just so precise in its mm. choreograph choreography in its planning that it just feels so like professional and like tuned up and it was it was great you know and it's not that Charlie's not professional, but I think she just kind of carries a natural edge to her because that's just like how she handles her artistry, you know? Not 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 that like Dua Lipa's completely sanded down, but like that was an arena tour. It's inevitably going to feel different than a, uh, you know, uh, theater room tour. So Yeah, for sure. But all right, well, I'm glad that you got
0: to see her, Dave. I'm glad you decided to buy those tickets. And I'm glad we got to talk about Charlie again because she's an artist worth talking about all the time. Why don't we move forward to another another artist that I enjoy talking about? Pusha T, dropping, it's almost dry. You know, we've been we've we've known this album's coming for a little bit. Music dropping in early January, mid January Paris Fashion Week. You know, we got the Lana Del Rey picture with the cocaine on <laughs> the face. I wish that was the album cover. It should have been for sure, but it's better than the album cover that that he ended up going with. But you know, neither here nor there. Um, And now the album's finally here Push uh, You know I think what, what stood out to me was Push really was between Two producers for this album Kanye West and Pharrell Williams Pharrell obviously Heavily linked with Clips Back in the yeah. day produced many of their albums Kanye and uh, Push have produced much, A lot of music in recent years Daytona uh, Most recently before this And I think in some ways, having these two kind of anchoring the production was uh, cool to hear, but also a bit jarring in terms of how the album flowed for me at times. Still really loved this album to be super enjoyable. I want to talk about some of the moments I liked and some things that maybe I would have done differently. But I want to hear from you. Did It's Almost Dry live up to your expectations, what you're hoping for?
1: Oh, yeah, it totally did. And I mean, there was a lot of anticipation just for for another Pusha T solo album, because it's been almost about a month away from four years since Daytona came out in May 2018. And yeah, I think like you said, it, it is really exciting that this is produced evenly between Pharrell Williams and Kanye West, because Pharrell, as part of the Neptunes, really represents Clip's Pusha T to a T clips literally signed to the neptunes back in the day produced all of those two clips albums and then kanye really represents all of solo pusha t that we came to know in the 2010s and beyond and it is interesting to contrast the two production styles on it's almost dry between these two obviously legendary producers and i gotta say i was really happy with what pharrell gave us on it's almost dry just because pharrell i think can be a bit up and down you know year over year in what he's giving you just kind of his production style yeah, but definitely some of the more memorable pharrell beats i've heard in some time and yeah overall i just i really enjoyed it because even though push a t yes he didn't reinvent the wheel yes yes it's still it's still push T on his narco shit we we know what <laughs> he's talking about but he talks about it so well yeah. <laughs> and he still finds new ways to tell us the things he's told us before that it still hits. And I think there's a lot of interesting implications that the last track on this album suggests about the future of Pusha T and his music career. But nonetheless, it's almost dry. It's just it's just another entry in, I think, like the second half of Pusha's solo career where he really came into his own, came into his own, you know, voice and and bravado and uh just a, a really awesome artist
0: yeah uh yeah. when when i was listening to him i was thinking of that kanye line from breathe in breathe out when he's like now i'm just rapping about money hose and rims again and it's just like push a T is like that line in like the biggest sense of the word where he pre- he's almost admitted that yeah i just rap about the same shit all the time but i just make it sound really good and i yeah. play the same audience and everybody just still loves it and like you know honestly good for him like he just knows who he is and he knows what he wants to talk about and he just does
1: it it's great yeah the, the pure snow we sell in white privilege <laughs> never heard that before fucking amazing Amazing. You know? uh, uh, but yeah i mean push it is not the most introspective guy and there's like bits and pieces on this and honestly that's more than you, you're used to getting from pusha but again it's totally okay he does what he wants to do and what he wants to do is still always at a really high level especially because i think kanye but especially pharrell were really up on their game with this one and also i think pusha t and who knows exactly how much is influenced by pharrell and kanye as well but pusha t really seems to have like learned from with daytona and it's almost dry that he's a less is more guy on every song these are not long tracks they are you know Barely ever sixteen bars, eighteen bars. It's really less than that almost always. Like he's getting in and getting out, honestly, on all of these songs. And I saw some people suggest that perhaps that's because he was used to making half a song as part of a duo in clips, and that's why he just doesn't write full, you know, three verse, three verse songs like other people do. Who can say? But again, he knows his strengths, and he and he sticks to them
0: yeah and
1: like you said he still finds ways to say things
0: i mean he's the the what drug dealing doc dr seuss or the cocaine dr seuss cocaine
1: <laughs> dr seuss perfect it's
0: ridiculous stuff but just hilarious um yeah and you know you can't you keep mentioning how much you really enjoyed what we got from pharrell on this and i agree i think the pharrell songs while they're i think a lot simpler um really hit A lot more for me and not necessarily that the production in terms of like the beat is simple but you know you hear the kanye songs and they're almost a little bit jarring you know Mm. they're they have these really tuned up samples you know kind of almost like a throwback kanye production style on this which i I appreciate quite a bit hearing it because i think you know when the the second release of the album that kind of put the kanye tracks at the top and the pharrell ones at the in the back half i think that Sounds a little bit better having having them kind of stratified like that. Uh because when it goes from something like uh I don't know, I'm trying to see here. Oh, like uh Back to track three. Yeah, exactly. Like like that. It's such like a jarring transition. You're just like, oh mm-hmm. wow, this is not the same album at all. Um, although I still really like hearing them on it. Um Yeah, i I'm I'm wondering for you because you said the Pharrell ones hit most. What was what were your favorite Pharrell tracks from this?
1: Oh, I, I think it Track one, Brambleton,
0: absolutely
1: illustrious, cinematic Pharrell beat, and -hmm. Pusha sounds so good in that one. Going right into Let the Smokers Shine the Coops, another Pharrell beat, really love those two tracks. And then you immediately get that jarringness of the two producers, because Dreaming of the Past, featuring and produced by Kanye, is very different. But those first two Pharrell tracks, I thought, really hit, hit, hit awesomely.
0: Yeah, the great way to start the album. I thought those were probably two of my favorites from the whole thing. But even later on, "Call My Bluff," I thought it had one of the more memorable like verse structures, kind of being, yeah. you know, just being like in case you forgot like <laughs> that that delivery. I just thought it was fantastic, and it's really like pushes sounding is like most menacing on the album. Um, I I just really loved that one. In terms of the Kanye tracks, any that you particularly
1: liked? Uh yeah, so I think there's, I, I think even all the beats they're they're at least interesting. Um, like, what's the one with the Beyonce sample from Kanye? Uh, um, one of these. Like, uh, oh, rock, rock and roll. That's the one with the Beyonce right, sample. Oh, that, that, that that that's a pretty interesting pull. Even if like the Cuddy feature is kind of extraneous, I suppose. Like, it's mm-hmm. kind of weird. I think to hear Cuddy on that song. Um, and Cuddy obviously had a big old tweet about how this is the last time he's working with kanye he had done this for Pusha a while ago etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean nevertheless you know i think like a song like diet coke for single that has like all this big kanye production and i think re- really really cool and kind of reminiscent of some other uh kind of reminiscent like, I don't know, like numbers on the board or something like some other Pusha t tracks solo tracks but that's one where I feel like in the context of the album, Diet Coke actually is like lessened in estimation for me because I feel like the Pusha T performance and like the lyrics are kind of more rote and by the numbers as far as Pusha T's standards go, which doesn't make it bad at all. It just kind of makes it another good Pusha T song. And when you hear the other tracks on the album, you're like, Oh, actually, yeah, that, that was actually kind of just a taster track at the end of the day. Yeah.
0: Yeah i i agree with your take on that you
1: know i'm just i'm trying to think
0: of what other kanye tracks really stood out like diet coke i feel like the tuned up uh sample really reminded me of like college dropout kanye but then you get hear me clearly which uh has a couple of other producers on it but that that feels like a just a one of the tracks they cut from daytona honestly you know it's two it's like two minutes 20 seconds and it's uh, sounds very much in line with that. So you you get things a little bit all over the place. I really did not like the how low key the closing track was, but mm-hmm. I know that you mentioned that it kind of leaves some some questions for you about Pusha's future. To talk about that real quick.
1: Well, yeah, there's a I think there's a bunch of obvious things. Right, I'm pre- I pray for you. You have Labyrinth, the producer featured, but also uh Malice, Pusha's brother, one half of Clips, back as malice not no malice of course clips breaks up breaks up because malice finds god retires changes his name to no malice and we've heard malice pop up here and there recently it's not the first time but the malice verse is actually like a clips malice verse he's back back dark you know back back uh back like evil pusher you know and meta wise it's almost dry is the last Push a T album on his Def Jam contract. And obviously, his relationship with good music was under the umbrella of that Def Jam deal. Is Clips coming back? Yeah. Is Push a T next phase of his career? He'll make a new deal. Maybe he sticks with Def Jam. He says him and Steven Victor say they're still with good music. They're still with Yay. But who knows if that's actually uh, on the paper moving forward? We'll see but I have a feeling like this could be like the grace note of Pusha T's solo career, which is, you know, been about 12 years, 13 years or so. This could be like the, 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 the end of it for now. And clips is going to come back.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's pretty obvious. And I, I think, especially with Pharrell back in the mix, they're probably going to make a uh, throwback album together, which I think would be great. You know, I think we heard yeah. a little bit of uh, malice on God is King but he probably was no mouse at that point. Right. I'm assuming. Oh, okay. oh yeah. Yeah. That's
1: right. Clips. They reunited on Jesus is King. On, Jesus is uh,
0: King. Sorry. yeah. Was
1: it use this gospel is the yeah.
0: track.
1: Yeah. Yep. That's right. That was the first reunion. Yep.
0: By far the best song off that album too. Yep. Um, Get the kenny g end, but yeah so I, I think you're right i think we're probably gonna get a Clips album i'd imagine probably pretty quick I, I think the pandemic slowed him down but i'd imagine that he's there they've been working and collaborating so right a so little taste i mean I,
1: and it'll be really cool to see what that manifests into because obviously malice has had a interesting trajectory to, to this point and pusha t as well because uh, pusha is actually at the most famous his most famous status and place in the culture He's actually never been bigger. Even if his music isn't actually changing as much as you'd expect from someone who's getting bigger and increasing profile, but due to the Drake beef in particular, as well as the association with Kanye over the years, Pusha T is super famous. And yeah, yes, he's not as big as Drake, but like, it'll be interesting to see what Clips album entails because they had a lot of label issues towards the end of the Clips run. That's why they went down the mixtape uh, route and did like all the re gang stuff. So, just seeing what that uh, what what clips is and, and and Kanye being assumingly involved in some way as well, in addition to you assume Pharrell and Chad Hugo. So, uh, just just interesting and, and really cool to see that kind of future uh, possibility. Also, one note uh, when when this album was, you know, on our radar, Die Coke. I can't believe that hasn't been the name of a song from Pusha yeah. T before. Just kind of perfect again.
0: That the joke uh T, a T man. Love that guy. He's he's just a great artist. He's a fun guy to to root for cuz he just feels very true to just who he is. That's that's totally it's just great. Anyways, we already put a song on our nostalgia best of 2022 so check that out on Spotify. Uh let's move on to TV, Netflix, Russian Doll. Back. Man, it feels like five ever since we talked about this. Mm -hmm. And that's because it kind of has been. I mean, this is Russian Doll dropped pre-pandemic, which pandemic feels like five years. So this is like eight years ago at this point in my mind. February Uh, 2019. 2019. Yes. Long time. So we're three years, two months removed from Natasha Leone's breakout uh, show, role, really put her on the map. I mean, she had been around for a while, but I think this is the first time something really felt true to who she was as an actress. Let her. Yeah.
1: I would say like specifically like, like comeback breakthrough. Yes. Cause she had, she had been around a long time and mm-hmm. famous in the New York scene, but going through all those personal issues, then getting her, get her life back on track. And then Rush Doll happens with the help of mm-hmm. Amy Poehler and Leslie Headland. It's like, Oh shit. You know, it's like huge, huge breakthrough. And I think we re, re, totally reestablishes uh, who Natasha Leone is as a comedic performer. Our character, Nadia Volvokov, is back
0: for season two, as well as a lot of the, the people from season one. Um, obviously, Yul you Vasquez as John Reyes is back this season. Uh, seven episodes dropping for season two. Uh, and this time exploring, I think, some different themes, not just like the the time loop, but the ability to like go back and explore different periods of, your family's history from the first person perspective. Uh, pretty interesting. Uh, Dave, I know that you you watched the whole season. I almost got through the whole season. We'll be talking about the whole season, though. I don't mind the spoilers. Um, overall, what was your impression of season two of Russian Doll?
1: Yeah, so I still enjoyed it. I don't think it's as strong as season one. It's one of those things, Russian Doll season one, even Barry season one, especially Killing Eve season one really amazing first seasons kind of out of nowhere of tv in the recent memory that conclude on such an awesome gray snow and like are so in sync thematically that like, you're like huh don't know if we need more don't know if you could pull it off uh, as well if you try and do it again barry actually managed to pull it off killing eve did not russian doll you know coming back three years removed said, oh they're gonna try it again is it just going to be a, a re, remake, rehash of season one all over again? And even if it was, honestly, probably wouldn't be that bad because Natasha Leone's really fucking funny. I, I wouldn't mind. But it's it's not a, it's not that. I think it, this is definitely a messier season, uh, perhaps has even loftier thematic ambitions, but I don't know if it, it it doesn't come together as well as season one did, which I think really took that Groundhog Day concept that you're in, introduced to in the first 10 minutes of the first episode. And by the end of that first season, you're actually much more invested in like the emotional journey of Nadia and Alan and like their actual like personal growth. is a bit more important than resolving the uh, multidimensional uh, troubles they're having. So season two, I don't know if it, it, it brings it all together quite as well, but they at least change it up enough that I'm still, Uh, happy that they were able to bring it back because i you know i think it's still really enjoyable like almost the entire time it's still really fun
0: definitely a lot of fun and i I think going through the different periods of history uh seeing the different interactions uh while there's certainly some some moments i'm like "Nah, this is definitely just a tv show portrayal of this um I, i definitely think it's it's really interesting and i asked some I think interesting questions. I, I particularly like the themes of just like understanding your family history and that intergenerational trauma that kind of uh, is a running theme for both um both characters in this season. Um you know, N- Natasha Leona is interesting cuz that her character is so, you know, gruff New York City alternative yep. chick and yeah, it's it's kind of, it feels almost turned up a notch in this season, like just kind of like even wittier, even more like sly and quick tongued and, and uh, mm-hmm. it worked at some points and at some points I just wanted her to like tone it down a bit and just be like hey, like you don't have to always be like boom, 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 but that really is just the character. It just for some reason felt like it didn't hit as, as much for me this season, but mm-hmm. um I still enjoyed every episode that I've been able to watch so far because I think it just ask good questions and it just is uh putting the characters in interesting situations that you definitely want to keep sitting with
1: yeah i mean you have natasha leone who like you said is super associated with new york and, and her as a performer very new york the accent the rasp things like that this time around her her mom is played by chloe Sevigny, another person very associated with new york city So I I just saw, like, meta-wise, that that was kind of cool. And I think Seven you actually was a very small role in Season 1 as well. But, yeah, I think because there's, like, there's just kind of more going on from a plot perspective in Season 2 that you can kind of get a little frustrated with uh, just Nadia's personality, I guess, because you're like, hey, can you just, like, get to, like, fixing things? Yeah. But to the show's credit, I think it does enough work to, like, establish why Nadia is kind of, like, Getting off the path and uh you know starting to uh lose her marbles a little bit as the uh the timelines are beginning to blend and and take over and things like that. I think the issue with season two overall is that there's just not a lot of Alan, you know no. like the season one first ten minutes the the hook the uh, happy birthday baby r- repeat you know the the hook of the groundhog day stuff amazing and then what halfway through roughly season one. We're in Alan's shoes, and it's like, oh fuck, this is this is awesome, and like, the the show actually like grows right in front of your eyes and goes somewhere you didn't expect. Season two, though, yes, we spend some time with Alan, just Alan, but like it just—I don't think it's enough, and like his payoff just is, isn't really there, and uh just kind of a bit unfortunate because he was such a integral part to why season one came together at the end.
0: Yeah, and I really, I really enjoyed that. You know, you kind of saw how their friendship had grown. Um, You know, from the last time we see them to when the story begins in the first episode, uh, Nadia just shows up at his house and he (laughs) just kind of comes in unannounced. And he's like, you know that you can only do this in emergencies. And uh, So you kind of it's kind of established that they've grown to their their friendship since then, which makes sense given what they went through. I got to say, I was disappointed to not get uh, more of him this season, Uh, but I did really like when some of those characters just like randomly popped up, especially, I mean, I guess not a random character, but her best friend, uh, Maxine Greta Lee is just dynamite in the, uh, uh, episode. I think it's episode three brain drain when they go Mm -hmm. to, uh, Budapest uh, Budapest, and oh my God, she is just hysterical. That whole episode. She had me dying. Her delivery and just her perspective is so out there and hilarious. And, uh, Greta Lee really delivers all that so well. Um, what other characters that pop up in this season did you find yourself enjoying being with?
1: Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Charlton Copley's uh, character. What's his name? Uh, Rez. Is that his name? Uh, Ches. Uh, Ches. 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 Yeah. yeah. Just because I I always like uh Copley. Um, mm-hmm. ever since I saw him in District Nine, pops up here and there, and it's like, oh yeah, that guy, cool. <laughs> and uh, I definitely I think he definitely brought the just the right. Kind of edge to the scumbag character he's playing in relationship to Nadia's mom. Um, you know, it, even if it's like kind of by the numbers, it, it is kind of fun to just like, you know, hey, we're in fucking East Berlin, Cold War time, Berlin walls up, yep. ooh, spooky times. You know, then go for their backs. Like, hey, look, there's some Nazis. Yeah, like, they don't really, you know, take it anywhere. Super profound, but still, still kind of cool.
0: Yeah i i really liked when annie murphy popped up as uh mm. young ruth uh, just like what did she calls her she calls her like a jackie o looking bitch or something like that she like said <laughs> so something very specific and i, I or it's it like mia pharaoh or something i just died laughing because i was like oh yeah like annie murphy really is just a knockout and you can almost like take her for granted given all the mm-hmm. shit's greek like how funny and well written that show is and the character development but yeah, she her presence on the screen was evident even as like a toned back, just like nice right. character. Um Yeah, I'm trying to think who else really stood out. I, I, I agree. Mean, the
1: Cold War stuff was cool for sure. Yeah. I mean, I really like Elizabeth Ashley as present-day Ruth. I, yeah. I, I quite enjoy that performance. Her and Leon have a good chemistry play off each other well. Mm. Um I, you know, I think it's just it's just kind of cool because like this whole like whole story, you're not really dealing with anyone super young, honestly. Everyone's like middle-aged for the most part, it's kind of interesting to see, see everything. And like, cause like, I feel like all the characters are pretty mature in this, uh, in this story through two seasons. Yeah. Um, You know, Leon has kind of suggested ideas for a third season. And I mean, at this point, why not go for it? If Netflix still wants to green light it uh, who knows, who knows, I guess, in that, in that department, but I have a feeling they'll again try and do some kind of new spin on it because they tried to do a new spin on season two. So hopefully um, if they do come back, we can get more of uh, get more of Charlie Bar- Barnett, get more of Alan.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree. I hope they make more of this. I really, uh, you know, even if season two doesn't hit quite as hard as season one, the themes that they're going for, the questions they're asking, the things they're looking at are are lofty and high concept. And I really appreciate them at least taking these swings. And totally. Leon is, wow. is a cool character to sit with, for sure.
1: Yeah, we, we also sitting now as too showrunner co-creator Leslie Headland. She didn't actually do any directing this time around, but still very excited for what's next for her because she's the one developing the Acolyte Mm -hmm. Star Wars series on Disney Plus, which is going to be set in the past in the higher public times, thus completely removed from any Skywalker. So really curious to see what her her spin is on that. We're going to get that show next year. Absolutely. So we'll be talking
0: about her. We'll be talking about Russian doll. If if we get into the season, hopefully we do. Let's uh, switch over, though, to another show that we enjoy quite a bit. And that's Barry back for what season three now. Crazy season three of Barry, man. (laughs) Another show where it feels like forever since we got it. And that's because this dropped only three months after Russian doll. (laughs) So it has been almost exactly three years since we got Barry. Um, May 2019. Last time we watched Berkman to block the last episode of season two Boy, it's back bill hater's back alec birds alec berg is back a lot of uh you know it was it was funny i was talking with a friend of the, the show sean mckenna about this and he was like do you think i should go back and watch any of barry season two or should i just like watch the recap at the beginning i was like you know what the recap will probably tell you the whole story i don't i don't know if i felt like I needed to go back and watch it, but every time I watch Barry, I'm like, "Oh yeah, this show is so much more layered than I remember." Yeah. It's really well done.
1: Totally. If if anything, maybe I want to go back and rewatch the Ronnie Lily episode mm-hmm. from season two, which was like this kind of out of nowhere like action, uh, martial arts, uh, yeah. episode. Apparently, there's going to be more action in season three, which is cool. But yeah, it's been a long time uh, since Barry came out. They were only i think a few weeks away from shooting season three when the pandemic hit too so this this was really affected uh by that obviously um but i think what's really cool about uh barry is another you know it's a show that season two we had some questions going in but you know i think the end of season two and the start of season three kind of really cement that the show was willing to change and evolve you know we have completely cast aside the, the acting class framing device that was so central to most of Barry to this point. And the characters are, are truly moving forward or at least moving in new directions. Or that's a part or closer. And and you know, I think just its status as a uh black comedy, a, a a true a true dramedy, you know, uh that doesn't isn't afraid to get dark uh, lends itself to like these, these really rich performances but also like really rich character arcs and Barry what Barry's been through where where Sally's going you know like there's I think there's just so much going on but it's really fun to see that the show isn't complacent in really any department.
0: Yeah, the yeah. you know Hater as a um, dramatic actor, I mean certainly he's had a a few more dramatic roles since his SNL days but always kind of that comedy aspect is what he's obviously known for the the way he has just kind of blossomed in this role and as this like uh highly depressed um almost at at times like feeling inhuman type character who's kind of like finding what it means to like be happy and be alive again and then navigating the all the layers of you know his relationship with Fuchs, his relationship with Sally, and and everybody else. It's uh, <laughs> it's really impressive, and I think this the first episode of season three really highlights just how good he is in this role, um, because he's really walking around like a zombie. Yes, you know, in in a lot of this, you know the the scene if you're watching on YouTube that he's uh he's calling this new client. The scene behind me, I should say, if you're watching YouTube, he's calling this client and. Uh, She's telling him about how he needs her to, uh, or she needs him to kill her uh, husband because she caught him cheating and, you know, he ruined her life, all this stuff. And he just is like, do the flowers mean any, anything different? Can you answer this question for me? And it's, it's hilarious, but also just like so gutting and sad to see Barry like in this, you know, who, as this person who thought he had found everything he wanted and now is feeling even more lost and hopeless and depressed than he was before. And, uh, you know, I think that's even highlighted further at the end
1: of the episode
0: where uh, he, you know, is with Gene and uh, it's about to kill him. And then he has that eureka moment and just seeing him like kind of flip in that moment, the way he's able to do that. And it felt so realistic. It was just, I thought, so impressive. Really enjoyed that. I also really enjoyed the way the episode looked at points like that scene with Sally, where she's on the set, moving from scene to scene, kind of running through Mm -hmm. that just was like. I thought that was so well done, so well written, just like really believable. And uh, just like you said, the show is firing on all cylinders right away.
1: Yeah. And it's really exciting to see where the Sally arc is going. What I understand from future episodes is going to be a big, uh, you know, kind of critique and comment on uh, how Hollywood and film production operates and how it treats people that it's, uh, you know, working within it. And it'll be really interesting to see how the Sally character uh, handles all of that. Uh, so de- again, said definitely something new for for the show, you know. And I it it's just really exciting, you know, w- where NoHo Hank goes. Yeah, don't really know, but Anthony Kerrigan's just so fucking funny and awesome in the per- in the role that the, the, I trust that they'll they'll find something for him to do because I mean he he was supposed to be dead long ago, but they realized the performance was just so dynamite they had to keep him around um you know i think i think it actually is kind of interesting premise of hank trying to reinvent himself because everyone he worked with and around and under him they're all dead so he's going to reinvent himself with new people that actually don't know about his previous incompetence i think that's actually a really funny idea i want to see how that's executed um and then yeah the obvious the obvious gene Barry conflict just completely exposed there's no uh there's no more tension about will gene find find out he knows fuchs told him in the season two finale so now now what happens you know like they, they didn't waste any more any any time kind of dragging that out we're actually just getting getting right to it yeah going back to NoHo hank real quick
0: uh him you know coming home giddy to crystal ball and being like i had my first interrogation i think i I think i really nailed it this was uh, so funny also seeing him like in the interrogation room like all the stuff he was just coming up with off top of his head was hilarious the Um, the raven yeah (laughs) he was like no it's like a real name it's like a really cool name (laughs) you can
1: look it up it has many meanings
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh so good um yeah, I mean it's interesting to see where it goes, but I'm wondering if uh, you know you see the scene where going back to what you're mentioning about Sally's arc in this season, where she after the meeting with uh, the the producers of her show approaches DRC Card- uh, Carden's N- Natalie mm-hmm. Greer, and she's like, you know, I just really don't don't talk in the meetings, just kind of like go make me a snack while it happens. And uh, Natalie's face at the end of that scene as Sally walks away is just so like gutted and disgusted and angry but like kind of keeping it together and i'm wondering if we're going to get a little bit more um drc this season You know, obviously a mm. big hit on the good place right. and just someone that feels like uh primed to have a breakout at some point and i really hope that they kind of bring her in maybe as like the juxtaposition of to sally of like f- females in the industry in, in some way something like that so Interested to see where it goes. We didn't get a lot of uh fukes. Uh, Stephen Rue obviously is um excellent in pretty much everything he's in, but didn't get too much of him in this episode other than kind of seeing him in this like uh, I don't know hideaway house uh, trying to convince the guys that's like watching over right. him to watch football with him. So I'm hoping right. he's not sidelined too much moving forward. Yeah, I mean, he's literally
1: with the Chechens, I believe, in Chechnya. Yeah. So, so yeah, it'll uh take some moving to uh, get him back with the core group. For sure. Any last thoughts? You ready to move on? Just happy the show's back. You know, you kind of forget, forget what what you've missed when it's been so long, you know, three plus years, but here it is. And, you know, I I know Hader took a lot of time with the scripts with the extra time, the pandemic allowed. So it sounds like they really, um, really got what they wanted with season three. So now we just get to see it. Absolutely,
0: let's move forward to another HBO show that premiered not on Sunday though on Mondays, as David Simon likes to do. uh, Most recently with the plot against America, which Dave, I mean, if you want to talk a relic of the pandemic, the plot against America literally premiered like the day or the day before the pandemic really started, like a few days before March sixteenth, twenty twenty. That was the last time we really got a uh, David Simon property um you know we talked about the deuce I guess maybe it has the deuce come out since then no the, the uh, deuce, deuce was, was before, before. Yeah, yeah deuce was right before um plot against America we really liked deuce really liked uh, obviously the wire David Simon is a uh, generation kill David Simon has made
1: so much yeah. good television for HBO it's so crazy. prolific but the batting average is also so high <laughs> and he's just a HBO workhorse at this point literally all of his shows that he's been the creator of have been an HBO the last 20 plus years.
0: It's funny. I, I haven't seen Tremay. I've heard really good things about yeah. it. I haven't seen show me a hero. I also have. Heard it's good awesome. Uh, and it's funny because I feel like show me, a, show me a hero is like the least talked about one I see from him. And it's Oscar Isaac being yeah. excellent in a David Simon show. That's burn like, falls
1: in it too. Yeah. Here he is it's like, oh, the, the, with ba- Simon.
0: the bad David Simon show is uh, literally still excellent. So yeah. Like you said, the batting average is really high. He's back in Baltimore this time. Uh, It seems like really just looking at how messed up the system of policing is as it's Mm. facing um, higher awareness around uh, the treatment of people of color, people in the BIPOC population by the police, um, really examining, I think, a lot of the um, issues within the system, Mm -hmm. as well as it seems like also going to be tackling how potential um trump presidency uh is going to impact you know the way that people prosecute things in the da's office and above so there's a lot of different things at play here i thought this first episode was excellent um george pelicanos and david simon uh were at the you know wrote this one so there's a, I think obviously going to get a lot of uh talent from that but i mean just overall, what was your impression of this first episode? Were you impressed?
1: Yeah, I was impressed. I did really enjoy it. And I think it's coming at an interesting time. You know, this is adapting a book of the same name from Justin Fenton, who is an investigative reporter for the Baltimore Sun. David Simon, of course, is a Baltimore Sun alumnus. As you said, he has previously made shows about his hometown in Baltimore with The Corner and. Yes you worked on homicide, life on the street as well, and then of course, most famously with the wire. So now to come back to Baltimore in some fashion and, and have police be involved and, and crime be involved again. I mean, what what else would it be involved with? It's the David Simon series. Uh, but to go back now, you know, not redoing the wire, but to go back now, what are, what are you trying to say? What is this show uh, actually about? And I think it's really interesting to have it grounded in uh you know 2015. Uh, and it'll go back in time as well. It's a bit, a bit nonlinear from what we saw in the first episode, but 2015 is kind of our present time, and the, the the shadow of the death of Freddie Gray in Baltimore is kind of informing how everything's going on. But just a show that's really unflinching in its portrayal of uh, corruption in, in policing, and and you know not just a Unfair and unequitable treatment by the police, but literally just straight up like police misconduct. And of course, all grounded in reality, that is the gun trace task force that was in Baltimore until it was exposed and taken down. Uh, It's just really compelling TV. And it's right up Simon and Pelicano's alley. And we actually have all six episodes directed by Renato Marcus Green, who just directed John Bernthal in King Richard. You know the best picture nominee, NBD. So I'm just really excited to spend more time with this just because already we have all these threads established through one episode of people on all sides of this this story, crooked cops, uh, dr- uh, people, you know drug dealers and criminal types, and then people actually trying to fix it, whether they're normal cops or justice department. People or feds, whatever it is, there's so much already going on. But the core, I think, the core subject matter, and you kind of already know like the opinion of of Simon and Pelicanos if you know their work. If you go on Simon's Twitter, you kind of already know what they think about this. But now we actually get to see it dramatized.
0: Yeah, and you know, yeah, you you mentioned how they do just so much like laying of the of the foundation of the story in this first episode, and I feel like they do it so expertly, it never feels like it's like too much exposition i mean i think there's some moments maybe between like um jackson and Steele, the the two attorneys who are kind of at the center of the civil rights division of the justice department in this um where you know uh, Steele's is kind of explaining to jackson the new the newbie like oh this is what's going on these are the politics of things these are how things go about and that that does some of the, the laying but uh of the groundwork but i think there's a lot more of like showing you right like the moments where they're actually on the street, um, you know, brutalizing people uh, intentionally, you know, coming into contact with people so that they have a reason to um, beat them up and arrest them. Um, but then also, you know, the stuff with Bernthal when they, they uh, ransacked that house, I, I used to say ransack I guess it's more like they, they toss the house and raid it, mm-hmm. but you see a lot of the, uh, the underbelly of the, the GTTF and, um, just how corrupt they they were and, and some of the, the shit they were doing. And Bernthal, man. I mean, the guy is just so good. <laughs> to to see where he's come I, I remember seeing him in The Walking Dead the first yeah, season that was the first time anyone really knew, knew who he was. And he was so dying 10 years ago. In that and I it felt like for a while he never was going to like break out of that and now it just feels like people are really re- finally respecting him as like the excellent presence he is on screen.
1: Totally yeah I, I feel like the punisher honestly you know yeah, marvel netflix i feel like that really raised the profile for him broadly but he's just taken lots of good parts whether it's fury or king richard which is definitely a bit different than what we expect from bernthal um even even smaller stuff like wolf on wolf of wall street like he's just a really dependable performer really charismatic but still unique. Um, it seems like this is going to be a bit more in line with what we think of him from like, say, Sicario, for example, given, uh, what, what his Wayne Jenkins cop character, uh, seems to be, who I believe that's actually the real name of, um, the officer in real life. But, uh, yeah, I mean, as soon as the episode ended, I was like, fuck, I need more of this right now. Obviously HBO knows how to, uh, spread it around really excited that excited for that. But, um, I actually saw some people saying in, in reviews that this is, a, you know, it's a miniseries and I always really respect that like Simon, he does miniseries and um, except for the deuce, everything's been a miniseries lately and yeah, uh, get in, get out, say, say your, say your piece. But even if we own the city, might not have enough like thematic, like comment to justify six episodes I don't think it's going to be a problem just because we're going to get to see all these performers and all this tact and and professionalism thrown in that even if it's like more time kind of showing us again, the wanton, uh, you know, evil of this corrupt police unit, I don't mind, you know, like, even if it's like, like that kind of wheel spinning doesn't bother me.
0: No, not at all. He just makes everything so... So much like fun to watch, even when it's like procedural shit, you know. Like, yeah, if you watch The Wire, like, you never would have thought like watching cops decipher and like listening on phone calls would be as interesting as he makes it. He's just able to like
1: highlight. If you if you've seen Show Me a Hero, it's like the actual subject matter of what they're like working on in this like small like Jersey municipality is like very super granular and not like this like riveting stuff of local politics, you know. Uh, but just there's just a way away with the pen, and yeah. and the storytelling storytelling choices. You know what I really liked about We Own the City episode one though was was the fake out they do. Uh, you have the guy being interrogated about his uh, in, you know in, in in the future scenes, and like, you just assume he's a criminal because we've seen a lot of people being accosted and arrested by the police, and then we see this guy in the past uh, break into a. Uh, drug dealers apartment that police other police are watching till so we see this guy break in with his with his some of his colleagues right and we assume that he's um you know a rival criminal or something like that and then we actually realize later on that no these are these are cops these are part of the corrupt cops and it's like this whole fake out of like what the true focus is of the show you know and yeah i thought that was done so well
0: no for sure uh it's it's <laughs> Simon is just so clever in terms of how he crafts these tales, man. I, and, you know, it, it was kind of weird being um, uh, someone who's watched The Wire probably two or three times, maybe even more in my life. Um, Seeing people like Jamie Hector, who played Omar on the show. Um, a couple other people like uh, Delaney Williams, uh, who's the, the police commissioner in this. He was a uh, detective on The Wire. Trey um, uh Dominic... Lombardazzi it's like you see these people and like especially Jamie Hector being this uh homicide detective when he was literally like the the kingpin by the end of The Wire that everybody was after it was like oh this is strange to see but also kind of like a fun moment to see how far you know the they've come since that moment where you can recast these guys and it's not that big of a deal in terms of the storylines though i wanted to just shout out um David Cornsweet Cornsweet yes. Uh, As as McDougal, he just is like every scene he was in. I just thought he was awesome. I can't wait to see what more his character is going to do this season. But I loved him.
1: Yeah, and I I was like I was like who is that? I looked it up. I was like oh fuck, I didn't recognize him like with the beard. And I was like yeah, I I I think of him from some of his Ryan Murphy roles, and this definitely feels different for him and an awesome look. I'm really happy to see see that. Definitely doing something new for his career. Yeah, last time we talked about him was probably Hollywood which, yeah. I
0: mean, as the lead in Hollywood to this, uh, I think definitely a better look for him. Also, uh, won me Masaku as uh, Nicole Steele, the the attorney for the Civil Rights Division, I thought she was really excellent. So, excited to see those two storylines play out specifically, but it's just going to be great. I mean, obviously you want to see what Bernthal's going to do. That ending scene where he's just like sitting in the interrogation room with those crazy eyes, man, I, I what a way to end it. So, um, looking forward to watching more of We Own the City. We'll be talking about it when the show wraps up. Any last thoughts, Dave? Are you ready to talk about Nick Cage? Let's go, baby. Nick Cage. Boy, uh, what a character. <laughs> in, uh, he played a lot of good characters also in real life. Quite the character.
1: I uh, had a conversation
0: yeah. with some people about him this weekend, and I think everybody had a different like, ridiculous story, whether it was talking about the uh, the dinosaur head, which I believe he bought, but it was, it was yeah, actually stolen, gone. had to be yeah. given back. Uh, the fact he owned a uh, haunted house in New Orleans, which I've actually been to, or at least outside of, very creepy. Some of the stories around that are pretty ridiculous. Or if you just even think about like all the ridiculous roles he's played and characters he's been, he is quite the character, but recently he's been making a bit of a comeback, wouldn't you say?
1: Uh, yeah, totally. And Nicolas Cage, he's been in been in the game so long like 40 years four, yeah forty year career or whatever like he's had many comebacks for <laughs> for different reasons so this is not the first one but he has seemed to have come out of the on the other side of his most recent troubles which were largely financial you know he's working a ton working on a lot of independent film and uh not you know outside the studio system work largely to cover like debts and then you know personal mistakes he has made uh, in his life but more recently you know i think the the choices have just been uh more positively received with stuff like colored out of space and mandy but then the last year with uh with pig kind of coming out of nowhere from neon and just a really amazing performance from cage uh oscar worthy for sure and now you're following it up with the unbearable weight of massive talent which is a pretty by-the-numbers action comedy, but the core appeal of it is that it's super textual reference about Nick Cage, Nick Cage playing himself. And I don't really know what other actors could be in a role like this because who else has the material to make a movie like this about themselves? Who else could do this besides Nicolas Cage? Nicolas Cage is a meme for many reasons. And this movie is largely about that meme. Yeah. there were, There's
0: only one other actor that comes to mind that could have done this. And, it, and it's honestly someone who's kind of been doing similar stuff and that that's Keanu, um, oh, who, yeah. you know, has been uh, kind of lambasted for his acting style at times, had the action career, has done romantic comedies, kind of has mm-hmm. done the whole gambit. And now more recently is kind of leaning into this like self-referential uh aspect of his career where he's almost playing himself just in every role at this
1: point right it's like think of the uh, always be my maybe exactly uh, cameo f- for this exactly I-, I guess tom cruise could do something like this but oh the problem God. is who still takes himself too seriously <laughs> to ever attempt something like this cage is very game in the unbearable weight of massive talent and really lampoons a lot of uh things about his life and his career that did in fact really happen and yeah. It that just makes the movie really enjoyable no matter what kind of cage fan you are. Cause it also, I think is a really fun action comedy and cage and Pedro Pascal have, uh, you know, gr- great chemistry and they're both movie stars.
0: Yeah. You know, I, just thinking about both Keanu and um, Tom Cruise, which I think that's a great call. If he wanted to, he definitely could do something like this, but Cruz and Keanu have those action franchises right now that they still, rely upon whereas cage doesn't really have that franchise um which i think even makes this part of his career even more impressive because he really is just kind of doing uh movies that he really believes in or wants to do it seems and that seemed to be hitting more um yeah national uh,
1: treasure three you think disney's (laughs) thinking about it
0: i think that's the franchise
1: that's right there for him
0: i would love it if it came back i mean it's a terrible franchise but it's also so good at the same time
1: yeah it's, it's a lot of fun
0: it is um so yeah now now we come to the actual movie we've been talking around it the unbearable weight of massive talent
1: nicholas cage
0: is nick cage in this movie and uh it's a lot of fun you know i i I found this to be like, like you mentioned uh i think it talks about a lot of the different aspects of nick cage's career and life and i think the way it kind of weaves in and out of Uh, these things that actually happened, which is kind of things from the story or yeah, things from the the written plot and story is is pretty interesting. But really, just putting Nicolas Cage alongside Pedro Pascal and letting them just like have a great time makes the movie so much fun. And I just thought this was super enjoyable. You know, not, not a movie that I think will make anyone's end of year list, but for what it is, just a real, real delight. How did you feel about it?
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I really enjoyed myself the entire time. I think what's what, perhaps disappointing about it is it doesn't actually dig as deep as it potentially could about the Cage of it all. You know, Cage, again, has had, had multitudes in his career, in his personal life, in his time as a celebrity. There was a lot of material to mine, but also things to, to comment on. But this movie doesn't actually go that deep which is totally okay. Cause the movie is still really fun. And even if it's ultimately just kind of about the meme of cage, you know, not, 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 not the, not the bees. Like he, he openly acknowledges the meme in the movie. It doesn't actually go beyond the meme that much, but again, it's fine. Cause the movie is still a lot of fun. And yeah, you know, the, the, the stuff that works best is I think clearly like the Pascal cage of it all Pascal's character as this like super fan in Majorca. Bringing Cage out to him, and they actually become a kindred spirit and they kindred spirits. And they have like these comments about like film production and making original movies and stuff. And it's actually like a huge reference to a lot of people like us that talk about the movie industry in more high minded ways. And it's like, that was like really, really funny to hear that expressed. And like, again, yeah, we don't get too deep about anything in this movie, but it's totally fine just to see things acknowledged the way they are. Um, you know, I think the stuff with, uh, Uh, Javi's cousin who's the actual villain the actual crime lord in the story that stuff's like pretty standard and like that that ending action stuff is pretty standard um but again I don't mind because like I feel like the the chemistry between our core characters is fun yeah
0: yeah I agree I, I felt like that kind of stuff was just like background but I really enjoyed more so just like the scenes where uh Cage was kind of put in these situations where He has to like choose between these ridiculous outcomes, and just like the whole like premise of him like going to this island to like basically like a money grab, and then being thrown into this like CIA undercover plot while he's actually like becoming friends with Javi. It's just like such a fun like position, and you throw his family into it. It's great. Yeah,
1: his nouveau shamanic acting ability. You know, I might actually be a good CIA agent. Like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He just
0: sells sells it really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, CIA agents and acting has a lot, have a lot in common. You know, I'm basically <laughs> a CIA agent. Just like, okay, yeah, the logic's fantastic. <laughs> um, you know, I also really liked the stuff where it was like him facing himself and just like how much he was really laughing at himself as like mm. Nicky Cage. You know, the younger yes version of himself, and where they actually like make out at one point and just Which like
1: apparently was a Cage suggestion. The script had him just kiss on the cheek, and it was Nick Cage. In real life, who said no? I want to aggressively make out with Nikki. (laughs) That
0: that's fantastic. I just love how game Cage was to like poke fun at himself in this. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know if many stars like you mentioned would
1: have the balls to do something like this. Yeah, honestly, like I and I mean, yeah, I mean it's just fun. And like, Mm -hmm. if no one else wants to do it, that's fine. Cage did want to do it. That's cool. heck, I even thought like Ike Barinholtz and Haddish were pretty good. Like again, like the whole like FBI plot itself is pretty paint by numbers, but I thought Haddish and Ike were like really funny, especially when they're first introduced. Totally. Um, Yeah, Yeah.
0: I actually felt like Haddish should have been used a little bit more in this because I felt like her whole like you know straight, straight laced FBI agent with Cage's ridiculousness was actually like a pretty fun duo between them. (laughs) And I I was thinking, you know, Haddish was such a rocket there back a few years ago like what 2018 when like
1: she's popping off
0: with yeah girls trip and night school and stuff like that and then i'm trying i mean she was in doing a lot of voice acting stuff card counter last year was a hit for her and yeah that that's what i was gonna say maybe she's starting to take some more thoughtful roles i actually and i i dug her with the the shaved head Mm. i'm i'm kind of hoping maybe she's like gonna be going more towards uh some like serious stuff or maybe some better choices but sure you know i'm looking here and she's uh she's in haunted mansion next year which uh, just the name of oh, the scarlet sound. movie right yeah yeah oh no, we'll see we'll see but yeah no could have used a little bit more haddish but yeah i thought right. this was just great
1: yeah and pascal too like just continues to impress you know he's gotten more and more famous ever since yeah. game of thrones and he's in the mandalorian even if most people don't realize it seeing the scene obviously with the helmet and the stunt work but uh like even like a wonder woman 1984 wasn't very good but pascal was good as the bad guy and really swarmy, you know and in this movie he's like just so committed and uh, he just instantly plays off of cage and uh i mean pascal's a rocket ship no, nothing to worry about there but really just curious to see what's next for cage you know because we're in the midst of one of these cage comebacks and he seems to at least be somewhat self-aware of his standing in the culture and his career as evidenced by this film so uh you know i who, who knows where it can go i feel like it's hard to predict
0: yeah you know it's it's funny I uh, look just looking quickly through the uh pascal filmography here. Obviously we saw him in the bubble recently. And mm-hmm. uh you know, e- even if that movie was not one of our favorites, the the scene where he almost died is by far the funniest <laughs> scene in that movie. And he's he's pretty fun in that. Um but you know he did Triple Frontier a few years back. Oh, yeah. He had a I think a guest appearance I don't remember, really remember him in this, but in Bill Street, if Bill Street could talk he was in that oh, I don't so,
1: remember that either.
0: Yeah. You know, I he's done some good stuff. Kingsman the Golden Circle he's he's in for a little bit. So there's some he I mean everything he's in he's just a, a delight. I really enjoy where his career's going. Knowing. And by far my favorite scene was them tripping on LSD. I mean that <laughs> that was just hilarious
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah, everything with the car. Cave starts driving, crashes into fucking everything.
0: <laughs> like well gets... even how it starts when they're like the guys eating ice cream, they're like, don't look. And then he just like looks over. <laughs> it's just hilarious.
1: Laugh naturally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> staring dead in the eye also then with the whole like wall thing where he's like oh, I, i'll I'll, never forget you like I'll, whatever and then he just like walks around to the side you know the whole yeah. thing is just so ridiculous uh that was great. also
1: quick shout out to the actress who plays cage's daughter in the film played by lily sheen who i'd never seen before but turns out she is the uh daughter of kate beckinsale and martin sheen who would have known wow uh
0: i'm sure we'll be hearing from her more moving forward, I mean, any last thoughts on this? I just, I think this is a, a fun movie.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah.
0: Check, check it out. The unbearable weight of massive talent, a movie we enjoyed. And Dave, <sighs> did you enjoy the Northman as well? Oh yes, brother.
1: The Northman. <laughs> we will be eating well in Valhalla, drinking the blood of thy enemy, because Robert Eggers fucking smashed it my guy viking epic in every sense of the word but yeah, still Egg- what you don't expect because it's robert eggers movie yeah eggers i mean uh th- three
0: movies in three feature films in the witch the lighthouse the movie i think you talked about in the pod when it came out okay and now the northman i mean by far biggest budget he's had by far biggest story he's told and man, I just was so impressed by this movie. Um, Eggers is uh, probably the, the up and coming like director, the one who's like not anointed yet, but seems like he's like right on the, the precipice.
1: After this, right? I, I suppose. I mean, I feel like in a certain sense he has been anointed. He's like thirty, what thirty seven, thirty eight. It's not like he's super young. Um, this is his third film. And I actually, saw we saw it pointed out. You know, Ari Aster's third film's coming out this year. Jordan Peele's third film is coming out this year. In a certain sense, they all kind of came up together, operating in various ways in this quote elevated horror style of filmmaking that we've seen recently. But yeah, I mean, Eggers, even if this movie, The Northman, didn't financially uh, do enough at the box office to justify its big costs. Artistically, creatively, he certainly delivered at scale. And it'd be very interesting to see who tries to approach him about what to do next, because he's a very particular guy. He wants to keep making movies in the past. He makes such a big point of how much research he does into period detail about his movies. It's been a huge aspect of all three of these movies to this point. And if it was up to him, The Northman would have been in Old Slavic and Old Norse and not in English, you know? But he had to make some compromises because with a movie of this scale, he didn't actually have final cut. So I don't know if he's ever going to truly play ball the way someone, in the, some in the industry might want him to, but he's certainly being uh, celebrated by film fans and people that uh, do see his movies. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I I hope he gets given the reins
0: to some sort of franchise, you know, even if it's something like a, a, a old school, like I, I, I This is this just kind of came to mind, but I feel like he would do like an old school, like Civil War movie, like really, really well, something like an Angels and Demons type series or something like that. I don't know. Could really see him just crushing like a period drama like that. But regardless, I just feel like you got to be all in on the train at this point, because if you've seen The Northman, not only is it an amazing action movie with, you know, some of the best action scenes I can remember seeing in recent film Mm -hmm. history and practical scenes too which makes it that much better but just you can just tell how much time he spends getting every single aspect of his movies perfect and the image he has in his head he goes to great lengths to get that on film and i just was so impressed you know it's it's hard to pick like one scene that stands out but (laughs) man i was in the theater i was in there was this this uh these two guys that went to go see the movie together and they were just cackling the whole time just to like how amazing and ridiculous it was like in that mm-hmm. final act when he says like I'll meet you at the gates of hell and then just the the scene the co- the uh the title card comes up and it says the gates of hell people were like yeah like, it's <laughs> just like a moment people were like going nuts because it was like yes we're actually getting like the gates of hell
1: moment it's so awesome yeah. and like uh, along just, those lines i had someone in my theater uh, cheer loudly when uh, the the final strikes happen at the gates of hell, yes. and then cheered even louder soon afterwards when the credits roll. Just yeah. the dude is absolutely juiced, <laughs> and I love the passion. I love the energy because this is that kind of story. You know, it's it's not that the plot is unfamiliar. It in fact, it's quite familiar, based off of uh, the Icelandic, you know, Nordic myth of. Amleth, which is not far off from uh, Hamlet, Shakespeare took inspiration from the very myth. So you do huh. know narratively, dramatically, more or less where things are going. You know, man, a uh, young boy finds his father murdered by his treacherous uncle, goes away and plots his revenge. Like you you understand that premise. And it's still really satisfying to see it executed. And because it's a Robert Eggers movie, there are all these other accoutrements to this film whether it's hallucinations for Anweth or ritual scenes where they start tripping balls and howling like wolves, whatever it might be. He does all these other digressions and has so many other interests in how he likes to plot his story that even if the core plot is actually pretty conventional, it's still just a thrilling and uh, riveting ride because there's still so much unexpected here and there. Yes. Couldn't agree
0: more. And I think what I found myself even more impressed by than the visual aspect, the action aspect, the, the attention to detail was just how full the story felt. You know, you you leave this this movie and you're watching it pretty much from the perspective of Amleth um, and uh, Olga and, and you know, where their story mm. as a family is going, that revenge story but in so many ways you could this story could have been told from the perspective of Fjellner. um you know mm-hmm. played by clay Bang, and it's a completely yeah. different story and you totally understand his motivations you totally understand uh you know this like black and white this like this non-black and white story telling, this very gray and detailed and fully fleshed out perspective and you you kind of are left like Man, was was Amleth really the good guy or the bad guy? It totally. A lot of ways, and I just was like so impressed by that because you—if this very much could have just been like that true revenge, like Amleth is totally in the right for doing all this, and like you just kind of leave—and it's still a good movie, but it was that much better because everybody's perspective was given attention.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, if someone else made this movie, Fjölnir probably is still uh, the king over in yes. Scandinavia and hasn't fled with what he has left to Iceland to be a farmer uh-huh. and amless revenge includes taking down Fjolnir at the height of his powers and then assuming the throne, you know, right. someone else probably tells that version of the story, but that's not what we get mm-hmm. here. And, you know, I, I, I liked, uh, Anya Teller joy as Olga of the birch forest quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Olga is as fully fleshed a character as she could have been, but you know, I, I it doesn't really pass the Bechdel test all that well, but like how she impacts Amleth at the end, you know, when Amleth dives off the ship and like, he's just too obsessed with revenge against Filnir and he just can't, can't give it up until he's actually dead. And it's like, man, at that point, you're like, you're, you're kind of uh, doubting what, what Amleth's got going on upstairs is because he's like, he's just, and he actually says it himself in, in, in one way or another. He's like, I've been so consumed with this chase for revenge, I actually don't know what would, what 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 to do after that's done. Yeah, and when you watch the movie, uh, you don't have to worry about the answer to that question, obviously. But it's kind of like a dog chasing his tail, I guess. Yeah, totally. And
0: you know, just to kind of, I think, rewind a bit. I, I thought the first, the opening. Uh, of the movie is is awesome you know told from the perspective of child Amleth, played by oscar novak who i thought was a really like striking looking yeah. child actor nice haircut it has, yes it has a very like particular like face about him um and you know his yeah. relationship with his mom played by nicole kidman queen gudron uh mm. and ethan hawk king yes arvendil uh ethan hawk just looking brolic and amazing also we should say quick scars is like unbelievably jacked in this movie like i don't even know how a human being gets that Insane. it's yeah. it's nuts but um yeah i i loved the, this opening scene ethan hawk is so good um and then you get that really weird scene with uh defoe as Hymir, hear and when they kind of yep. anoint uh El- amleth as a man in that like yep. in spiritual ritual just so weird and fun uh, <laughs>
1: I saw someone call it like Norse bar mitzvah or something like that. <laughs> it's basically his coming of age, but um, they get him high in one way or another, and then they just yeah. assume the the wolf identity and stuff. But I really loved like when that's going, and you have um, Defoe. You have Hamir uh, the Fool's like uh, narration, but it's like overdubbed, very reminiscent of like parts of the Lighthouse, of which Defoe was the co lead in, like uh, really effective scene, and then right off the jump as soon as that scene ends feel near uh get, gets after it and uh hawk gets got you know it's uh they, they don't waste any time i really like that entrance scene though when hawk arrives from war because like it's a really like cold scene you know he's not like he's this beloved king even if he is the king you know and you can kind of see with close bangs energy it's like hmm here ain't too happy with what's uh going on right now and it's like it doesn't matter that you can see it coming because I think everything works because like you said once we see Clay Spain again in Iceland your perception of Felonir is so different you know it, it's it's such a different character than like the evil uh murderous uncle that we're introduced to yeah I
0: totally agree and you know I <laughs> uh, I'm I'm really struck by just like so much of like the foreshadowing of the story that's told in this part. Right. Not only do you get the moment where Hymir, who's, you know, this, this fool, but also this like friend of Arvindil, And uh, he kind of makes the joke like, Oh, you know, her cup gets wet for her another for the brother or however he says it. And, yeah. you know, uh, feel near, you know, kind of out of duty has to like, like push back against that but obviously foreshadowing that there's actually some something going on there you know you yeah. also get the the moment where um uh Hawk and, and uh kidman are, are talking privately and kidman's mm-hmm. like you know it's been a season since we've been together let me take care of you and he's like nah i'm good and you're, you're kind of like, you're seeing some of the fraying at the edge of this relationship and it's not this totally loving relationship that amleth kind of believes it is and obviously that comes to fruition later on in the story yeah um you've got i just wanted to touch real quick kidman for all the things we've seen her in recently it's just on a different level here yeah And this is by far the best she's been quite some time i think
1: oh 100 100 yeah as gudrun especially once the revelations about yes. her true motivations and status as a character she's set up you know, in young Amleth's mind as like this damsel in distress taken by the murderous uncle and made the new bride. Then you actually realize from Gudrun's own mouth, that's not what's going on. And that's an amazing scene when oh, that happens. God. And, and Amleth's mind is blown, honestly. But you totally best thing Kidman's done in long ass time, honestly. Yeah, that, that scene, I, I don't know
0: if, if... She'll get a nomination for this. But I think if there's even consideration for her as a supporting actress, that would be the scene. Because the way that she kind of goes from like surprise to, uh, you know, like frustration to like, anger about the way that uh, Hawk used to treat her. And then that like weird moment where she kisses him and talks about like, Oh, you'll be my king now. Like, it's just like, so like mind bending and like disgusting and like repulsive, but also like, you can't look away. It's totally her. Just like Mm -hmm. firing all cylinders. Super awesome to see. Um, Yeah. I I thought that was amazing. And uh, you know, as, as we move forward from the story, you know, uh, obviously Amleth gets away after his father Mm -hmm. is
1: assassinated
0: next time we really see him, he's like this warrior as
1: an adult yep. S- and raiding in Slavic lands with some group he caught on with not really explained. Exactly. And he, you know, you see him, he seems
0: very just like angry within himself. They have that ritual where he, <laughs> he kind of becomes the the bear kind of the spiritual mm-hmm. ritual around the fire. And then we really get some, maybe one of the best action scenes of the last, like, I don't, I don't know, maybe ever on, on film, like, him catching that spear and then climbing the wall and just like that whole raiding of the village is unbelievable, dude. I mean, what was your reaction to seeing that?
1: <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It, it, it's framed too as like one continuous take, too. Yes. And uh, it, obviously, not a real one take, but like looks so awesome. And it, because it's so practical, too, Skarsgar literally scaling the fort wall with one axe after. I mean you said it, it was a, he was a huge like, wow moment viral moment from the trailer where he catches a, a thrown spear a thrown javelin and then returns it to the sender in their chest like it's fucking thrilling shit and then just watching him just run through the village and cut all of these guys down and you know they make a point of you know Amleth doesn't kill any women or children but they don't also really hide the fact that tons of people are being thrown into slavery and there's also sexual violence happening just just in the other room you know it's not like they're hiding anything either um
0: they, but, they literally burned a whole house of children
1: yeah. after, after that scene it was pretty brutal yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah but 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 am like it's such a great introduction to like am this like singular focus too because even like right beforehand when they're like in like the war news uh some of his compatriots just shoot down two guys in a boat with, with bow and arrow just for fun and laugh about it. And then like, looks over and just looks back, like he's such like a, has a one track mind at this point. And I think it's really cool that the way they set it up later with like by chance where he learns about uh Fjolnir's, uh new developments, moving over to Iceland and deciding to throw everything he has away, which seems like he had been relatively successful, all things considered and throws it all away to, put himself into slavery basically to have a chance to get his revenge um and and right before that of course we have the uh bjork cameo as the seeress which is another one of the really memorable uh hallucination uh scenes bjork obviously of iceland but her first acting role in like 20 years or so but super super awesome scene too
0: yeah that was that was fantastic i really liked all of the scenes where it pulls some spiritual aspect and you know you have the super weird one when he's you know on feeling feeling years island in iceland where uh (laughs) if the guy is like wearing like female garb or like traditional like uh like witch garb with and then he takes over defoe's voice um Mm. as he's like giving the premonition i thought that was interesting leading to him going and getting the sword from that viking skeleton king which is just an amazing scene as well that reminded Uh, me of the green knight
1: ending. yes honestly
0: there are i think a lot of parallels to the green knight in this you know the like the way it was shot kind of like the greeniness in some scenes the lighting Mm -hmm. in a lot of it i thought was very similar and just like the story very similar in terms of epicness to um you know, it, it, there's a lot of time spent with him as a slave on this island. We could go into every single scene and probably pick out something we liked, but were there any particular moments when he's like mm. plotting his revenge, kind of following through on some of this that really stood out to you?
1: Sure. Well, in general, I, I really enjoyed it. just him and Anya, Taylor Joy, mm-hmm. talking her and her and Scar Because again, like again, like the older character is good enough for the film, but it could have been better, I think. Um, but Taylor joy just has such a presence obviously we've we've known that for some time um heck when uh she really blew up for anyone who didn't know about her when the queen's gambit she was actually making this movie at that time and all that queen's gambit press she did was when she was shooting this film uh, over in uh ireland actually shout out ireland doing an amazing stand-in for iceland it looked just like iceland i went to iceland Iceland. last year it looked just like it but it wasn't actually iceland but uh yeah in terms of scenes I, i think uh a lot of the Olga, uh, Amleth scenes, like when they're like at the uh at the farm and kind of like stealing time to talk and stuff like that. Along those lines, once like their plan is kind of in motion, and like uh, I believe the way it went was o- Olga like drugged a lot of like the guards. That's how that went, and they started like like hallucinating, and some of them started killing killing themselves, and just when once Amleth starts terrorizing everyone as like this demon of the night. And near and his flock are like super like disturbed about what's going on and like talking about their faith and stuff like that, and then you have a reference to like the growing uh incursion of Christianity across the world, and it's like is it the christians it's like the, the those that worship a corpse on a tree <laughs> like yeah, crazy <laughs> all of that stuff I thought was super thrilling once yeah and with really starts getting after it, in the night. yeah totally um you know i i think uh the
0: one that probably stands out most to me is the one where he's like howling he gets all the dogs to howl and then the dog like attacks uh the queen yep. queen gudrun and uh you has to put him down it's just like it that's the sort of stuff that you just wouldn't expect but it totally makes sense going back to like the animalistic ritual from the beginning and like how mm-hmm. he's like, able to connect with like animals in this way just is, and you yeah. see him like make eye contact with that like on a wild dog or whatever it is earlier on yeah it's i think yeah yeah and it comes comes back around i thought that was great um but yeah i think all that stuff is super cool and like how it's you know it's a revenge movie but not in terms of it's not like uh john wick where he's just like going all out just constantly killing people and i guess he is but he's like being way more thoughtful about how he's going about this and like creating this like persona of this you know spirit like you talked about i thought that was fantastic
1: it's a lot of shades of like Biblical shit, you know, like yeah. um when uh uh what's his name? Um Jesus. No, no, no. Um Old Testament, Prince of Egypt. Um, Moses. Moses, when Moses starts basically terrorizing Ramses and the Egyptians. Right. It's like just like <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. honestly.
0: The seven plagues type stuff, yeah, for yeah. sure. Totally agree. I also really liked the uh that that game they played. I don't know what was going on there, but I thought that was like a an interesting moment to like kind of show that amleth isn't totally this like vengeful monster right in a sense saves you know that kid. yeah saves the kid has maybe more feelings for um you know his younger brother talks about how he, he would take him with him if necessary when things get to it and then obviously that doesn't turn out to be so but um you know the brother really uh got some some jabs on it before before Hamlet <laughs> just
1: yeah so I don't know about you, but like once he enters that room, and you already know, like, uh is like giving Gudrun like a a sword or something or mm-hmm. spear or whatever it was, and like they're like hiding with the little little boy, and it's like I was like, man, bro, don't go in there, man, you're gonna get fucking got, and yeah. like he gets he he gets
0: kind nice of good
1: there. It's like, ah, oh, man, you you might have had a chance to pull this out if you didn't just get thoroughly fucked up by Gudrun and the kid. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I, I I had the same thought. Um, also, there it reminded me of another movie that I can't place. But there's another movie where like a person jumps on someone's back and stabs in the back a
1: lot. Of, I Can't remember which is one. Is it was. like Arya with the Night King? It might of? it
0: may it might have been. Maybe I don't know. I, hmm. I'm gonna be thinking about it till it, it, it hits me. But yeah, that that certainly I was like, oh no. But then when they when they go to the gates of hell, I mean, this is yeah. like the most visually stunning shit. They're literally fighting on a volcano like as it's erupting. Erupt incredible like just the lava lighting the whole way like it's all dark but you get the, the red glow and when she well when, yeah when his arms get cut and he's just stand there and you're like oh he's not gonna pull this out and then he kind of like summons the, the strength of the kings and just yeah. like they both finish each other off at the same time which is so perfect and beautiful and memorable just so memorable
1: right so yeah the why well, I really love the foreshadowing with that scene too where like and with kind of he says it to himself or he says it when visions where he's like he he will kill or defeat feel on like a red a orange lake or something he says it i was like after the second time i saw the volcano i was like oh that's the orange lake i yeah. get it now and yeah like gates of hell it's like right away like, oh fuck yeah let's get badass go. and the person in my my uh theater who cheered the first time cheered when you see Fionnir get decapitated but he started cheering before you realize that that handless. sword was also stuck yeah, in Hamlet's chest, handless. finishing him off. Uh,
0: I would, I would definitely watch a uh, sequel to this where you you see what what happens with Olga and the kids. Just want to say if right. Beggars wants to do it, but he he definitely has other projects in mind. Yeah,
1: saying. well, I, and that's just the unfortunate run with this film too is budgets like seventy to ninety million. This movie did. Did okay for non-franchise movie, twelve million opening weekend, but it it, just—it's gonna lose money for Universal and Focus Features. Just really disappointing, honestly, because artistically, creatively, critically, it's delivered, but it um, just—you know—it's not gonna uh, quote-unquote justify its production. And you know, I don't—I don't think Eggers cares about all that too much. He kind of put in the work when the lighthouse was getting raves at Khan to like get the Northman finance, a movie he had basically kind of already developed with the uh, Icelandic poet Són, So he, 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 he earned this, right? He, he got this done. And is he going to get a big budget like this again? Well, not unless it's for something someone wants him to make. And it doesn't sound like Robert Eggers wants to make stuff for other people. He wants to make his own shit. So I guess that's okay it's still great that he at least got to make this because he just smashed it. Yeah, totally.
0: Um, I I think, I think he'll get more. I mean, uh, box offices are low, but uh, I think people are going to respect this. I, I assume this will probably at least get some awards buzz come into the year, you know, nomination so. or two. So I, I think he'll end up at least remaining at this level, but mm-hmm. Good shit, man. Northman totally totally lived up to my expectation. So really, really pleased with that. This is why going to the movie theater is great too. Like this is oh, a yeah. movie that being in theater
1: is just so so different. But totally. All right, what do we got for next week, Dave? So next week we have a new Kalani album, which is always fun. But just a lot of TV, honestly. New TV, Paramount Plus. You have The Offer, the Miles Teller starring story of the very troubled an eventful creation and production of the godfather one of those popular movies of all time and if you know anything about how that movie got made there was a lot of drama and now we're going to see that drama also miniseries starring andrew garfield on hulu under the banner of heaven is kicking off and then we'll also talk about uh two shows we like quite a bit that are wrapping up pachinko on apple tv plus and tokyo vice on hbo max
0: Lots to talk about next week. Hit that subscribe on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. And again, five stars on Spotify. We appreciate you. See you next week.